Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I am Tracy Hotchner, your dog's best friend and your kitty cat's best friend, bringing you authors and experts every week to enhance your appreciation of the pets who share your lives. Please give a listen to all my new Pet Talk radio shows on the Radio Pet Lady Network, co-hosted by top experts at RadioPetLady.com. Dog Talk is a production of Eight Paws LLC, which is solely responsible for its content and is brought to you with the generous support of Platinum Performance Supplements, Precious Cat Litter, Nordic Naturals Omega-3 Fish Oils, Feel Away and Adaptil, and Waruva Pet Foods. Waruva is a privately owned company named after the owner's cats, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. They are dedicated to the highest quality ingredients in their cans and pouches. People could even eat it because it's all made in a human food facility, so everything in there is good enough for us to eat. All the flavors of Waruva, Cats in the Kitchen, and their more economical BFF, Best Feline Friend Brands, are great for finicky cats, especially those you're trying to transition away from dry kibble. I have a wonderful show today. I have such a cool book, Finding My Way to Moose River Farm, Living with Animals in the Adirondacks, something that many of us may have dreamed about doing, and Finney actually did it. Then Stan Yoakum will be talking about puppy rearing for canine companions for independence. I've always wanted to know what are all the demands and challenges, and is it just so sad to give up the puppy, although it's going on to a good life. And then Julie Hecht, who works with uh, Alexander Horowitz at Barnard in the the dog spy lab, as it were, is going to talk about the amazing work that, that she's been doing, the studying of dogs they've been doing for a long time. I'm going to jump right in and say hi to Ann Finney. Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties too, Ann. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, you're welcome. I, I really, the name of the show today should be Dog Talk and Kitties too, and Goats and Pot-Bellied <laughs> Pigs and Geese uh-huh. and let's see, what did I leave out? Fawns. Mm-hmm. And of yep, course, donkey. horses, 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 horses. You're obviously such a horse lover, which is fantastic and clearly was the beginning of your, your great love of many animals. I guess really what fascinated me about your book is that you started out as so many of the people that live with dogs and cats did, just loving animals kind of generally. And usually dogs are the first thing that we get to have. And then some of lucky of us get to have horses. But you just kept adding on to the animals in your life and going further and further into the countryside so that you could accommodate that. You you realized it early on, though, that that was kind of your, your karma, right? Yes, I was a child who just loved animals. I was so attracted to them. And um, from a very, very early age, I can't even remember a time when I didn't love animals and a time when I didn't picture a life with so many of them to care for. You had that always in your mind that you wanted to be that Noah's Ark kind of girl? Exactly. Always. I pictured myself walking in the woods with a lion and a giraffe. Oh, wow. And horses, of course, and dogs and cats. And I, I just, yeah, I just wanted them all. And I wanted to learn as much as I could about them. So when that time came, when I became this magical adult who could do yes. anything she yes. wanted, I'd be ready. So do you think that really there is a way that we can visualize things in our lives? And if you really believe in your visualization, you can make it happen? Or do you think you're like one in a million? 
No, I do. I think that I made decisions along the way that led me on this path. I had a clear vision of what it looked like when I was probably five years old. Wow. And I just made decisions every everything that I did, take riding lessons that was going to get me into a barn. Um, eventually, I was able to have a horse of my own. I got a dog when I was in college. I met a wonderful man that I married, and he sort of had the same vision, too. Yes, yes. Uh, maybe not as extreme as mine, but... But he, he went was, along with your madness. He did, and he loves our animals just as much. And I guess the truth is that, that in the book, um, there are many times when an animal cr- could cross your path, and some of us might say, no, that's okay. I guess I won't take the pig just now. And you were like, a pig? I've been thinking of a pig. Yes, okay, let's go with that little tiny pig who then turns out to be 200 pounds. The thing I don't understand about Vietnamese pot-bellied pigs is that they always gave the impression, there were people in the horse show world that would sort of have them sometimes in the barn, that they were always going to stay small. Did you ever think they would stay small? Because really they'd get as big as a, as a breeding sow, you know, for like food production. Exactly. And I think that's where the uh, industry sort of took off because what the, the problem is they grow very slowly. And now that I've known pigs and I know a lot about them, I realize that when you see those tiny pigs, yes, they are young pigs and they can be small for a good year or so. Oh, I so my, see. Yes. And so people are sort of talked into, well, if it's a year old, I mean, a dog right. would be almost full grown, right. but they grow for about two or three years quite slowly. And then all of a sudden you are blessed with an adult who's 200, 250 pounds, which believe it or not is still miniature when you compare it to a farm pig. I mean, they can get as big and fat or as fat as um, a farm pig because they tend to not get enough exercise. But when you look at a farm pig that's close to 1,000 pounds or 800 pounds, oh, I see. the pot belly pig is still in the miniature realm. <laughs> By comparison. You could still argue they're miniature. But, well, one, uh, of, one I, of the things that you talk about in the book is as you were learning about this piglet and learning about all of her you know, ways and habits and intelligence and how she got things out of you and the difference in her learning curve or even learning style to the dogs in your life, it was interesting that you brought up the question of, is a pig smarter than a dog? Does a pig make a similar kind of pet? Obviously, you can't take them to the pig park because you, <laughs> there is no pig park to go for a walk. But what did you see over a lifetime of sharing your life with these different species of animals? What do you see as the differences and the similarities of pigs and dogs? Well, I think that pigs are very, very intelligent in the same way that a dog is. They can learn things. But I think that a dog wants to please their person with their ability to learn. And a pig really is a strategist. They need to figure out how how this works for them, how, you know, what's in it for them. So it's two different mindsets. And in both cases, both of them teach me. I have to learn how to address the learning style. Right. And so do you see a pig in some similar way in what you've just described as being more like a cat? Yes, I would say so. They have that personality. Now, I've had two. The first was a neutered male who was more... Uh, engaging. He sought out my company, loved to snuggle with me on the couch. But still, when it came to doing things, if he didn't want to do it, he really wanted to know what was in it for him. How big was the dog biscuit and how many (laughs) are there? And uh, the female that we have now is an intact female. She was too old to be uh, spayed. And she's a little more aloof. She likes her space. 
she doesn't mind being patted or engaged with, but she does like to be able to get away when she's had enough. So even so, that's more like a cat because cats exactly. are very much like that. Yes. So who was the one who would butt the butt the people's legs underneath the dinner table that decided at a certain age didn't like visitors for more than a short period of time? Was that the male? That was the male, our first pig, Noah. Yes, he would uh, camp out under the dining room table after the guests had been there for about three days. He could handle two days, but at three days he thought it's time for them to pack and be on their way. Boy, so many of us with country houses that people visit could really use a Noah under the dinner table because three days is the right amount of time. <laughs> Couldn't so, they? Yeah, it's like uh-huh. a watch pig. It's like, exactly. like a house guest watch pig. Time's up. Yep. That's it. You're out of here. Mm-hmm. The horse part of your life, I think, is the, the most sort of potent for you, the most resonant. The pictures in the book, they're wonderful photographs. And you look like you were a happy child and a happy adolescent and a happy young adult and a happy adult. And maybe it's just in all the pictures you're with an animal and that makes you so happy. But I think those of us that have had animals in our lives at any point in our lives can really see the joy you have in just getting to be photographed next to this, whatever the species of animal that you're that you're next to. There's a photo that you that somebody took of these four show horses in their show bridles, but with no other tack on, and there's no human in the picture. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's anyone who, who loves animals will, will, will love the book because it, it really is your journey of living with them and learning about them. But how did you get that picture? How did you get them to all look up, stand still, um, have everything just like all the hairs right in place? How did, who did that? Well, uh, I took the picture, but uh, it actually, well, what works is it was a really hot summer day. That is helpful. And uh, I think I had some nieces visiting and they kind of ran out of the picture at the last minute. But if they're warm and these horses are turned out together anyway, so they didn't have, they didn't want to interact with each other at the moment. And then we just, you know, made a lot of crinkly noise to get their ears to go forward and uh, we snapped quickly, and, and it probably all fell apart shortly after Right, that. everybody went wild and broke their reins. But I must say, they, <laughs> they, they, they're pretty fancy-looking horses, and for, okay. for you yeah. know, your, your, your uh, farm in the Adirondacks, and that's because you spent a lot of time around some pretty fancy horses. Michael Matz is maybe not a name well-known to, to all the Dog Talk listeners, um, very well-known to me, both the name and the man, because I competed – um, in hunter jumpers when he was competing and a few of my friends actually um, trained with him. And so their horses would be flown into a show and be in his barn. And there was nobody on the horse show circuit, nobody that was considered a true horseman the way he was. There was never a negative word said about him. He would never let a horse go in the ring that in any way was compromised or uncomfortable. Um, it was all about the animals. And so the fact that he then switched, which kind of surprised me, but maybe not you, from hunter-jumper world, mostly jumpers, to flat racing, and then became the trainer of Barbaro. And then I didn't see his name anymore. And when Barbaro was was injured and then put down, um, we I had a couple of shows in which I talked about him. Even though it's dog talk and kitties too, many of us love horses, and many of us are aware of all the issues around racing and. Uh, and this particular story was was so heartrending. And I thought of all the people for this not to happen to is a man who never, ever, ever put a horse in a situation where he w- might have been compromised. It was just clearly a freak accident. But did he stop training horses after that? No, he is still very much involved in training racehorses. I think the uh, Barbaro 
uh, story, of course, has lasted with him forever. He is deeply affected by that. Yes. But no, he continues to train, and I think that he has carried with him to the racing industry what he had in the hunter-jumper world, and that was this impeccable, uh, absolutely no no threat to the horse, nothing that would be artificial yes. or that would challenge the horse to an injury. He really has maintained that composure, that same that that same part of his personality is is what he puts into racehorses. And the reason that we don't see him so much is because well, he he has been in the Kentucky Derby again since oh, Barbara's win, and he has uh, he still continues to train. But I don't think that it's so important to him that he wins the big race. I think that he is still driven by producing this art form yes. and putting it in the appropriate race because there's a whole That's right. variety of races that sure. they can. Sure. And so he really is about the animal and where it fits. Well, what's nice about it is that it's an industry that's come under so much scrutiny and so much bad press and, and, and the bad press is all true and, and, and justified, but it doesn't paint the entire picture. And there are those beacons of light like him. And it's pretty great that you at a young age worked in his barn and saw his ways of doing things. And of course, transporting those, that certain, the, the sensibility can go to the Adirondacks in the deep of snowy winter, but but really it's a little bit more of a rustic uh, a rustic environment. Dachshunds were your dogs of choice. How did you wind up being a doxy person? Good question. I had large dogs growing up. My family was a large dog family, and uh, I always loved the breed. I had a friend who had a dachshund, and I just loved her as a child. So I looked forward to the day when in this collection of animals that I would go walking off with, there were going to be dachshunds. Oh, in the woods with the lion, the giraffe, and a yeah, dachshund. Exactly. And meanwhile, your first doxy developed those that kind of spinal problem paralysis and not use of the hind end that is so endemic to dachshunds. And yet you had a really happy use of those little wheelie carts that are made because I actually had never heard of a wheelie cart being used for rehab and then being able to hang your cart on the wall as you did. So tell us a little about that because a lot of people that are listening might have dachshunds and they may not realize, as I think you said at one point, we weren't as careful as we should have been. They should never go up and down stairs. They should never jump on and off of furniture nor in and out of a car. But still, even if one was hypervigilant, these things can happen because of their incredibly long spine. How did you put that, those wheels to use and then be able to have, you said, 10 good years after the wheels came off. It was amazing. I had a timely uh, meeting with a woman who was walking by me on my way to the post office. Uh, we had already taken the dog to the vet. We took him to Cornell University and they wanted to do an extensive surgery, which at the time we could not have afforded. So we brought him home thinking that he was going to live on this cart until he showed us signs that he couldn't even handle that. And you thought you'd put would... him to sleep kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. But we, we weren't ready to do that yet. But I met this woman who was walking her dachshund, and we got talking, and she said, no, wait. If you just wait, it could take a long time. It might take up to eight weeks or three months, but if you just wait and keep him quiet and uh, allow him to just rest, she said the chances are that it will come back. She had had an experience with two dachshunds in her life. So I went home that day feeling a little more optimistic, and lo and behold, by the uh, end of September, he was starting to use 
his hind legs and starting to put weight on them. And lo and behold, he was always weak in the hind legs. Right, right. But he wasn't paralyzed or unable to get around. He wasn't, and he didn't need the cart anymore. So I'm wondering if that is is, uh, something that can happen more often than not. We jump to surgery because that does seem to be, you know, a, a way to fix it quickly. But in this case, and I think in a number of cases, rest and just being patient and waiting are better and, served. And using those carts, I mean, there's Eddie's Wheels, and I think there's one that's just called Canine Carts. There's, there may even yep. be a third company. I've never thought of it as a tool to rehabilitate and get better. And, I'm, and I don't think it's people have fully understood that. It's like, oh, my God, my dog's paralyzed. Well, I'm not going to make him spend the rest of his life in a cart. Plus, maybe I have some stairs. And so I can't redo my whole house. But if you knew it would be for three weeks or even three months, you'd figure it out. If it yes. was a way station to some kind of, you know, mobility again. So I think that's a, a really great little part that came out of the book is, and I'm sure it's just, you know, you didn't realize, wow, this is a big light bulb moment. But for a lot of people, it would be because I think mm-hmm. wheels are viewed as, well, a way station, as you said, to having to give up being alive or just being a cripple forever in a kind of doggy wheelchair. But really, it. I mean, look, he had another great 10 years on a farm running around or, you know, waddling around, but whatever it was, he was fine. Well, let me just add to it that I think the time that he spent in the cart lifted his spirits, which, as we all know, is part of the healing process. So we thought that he he didn't seem to notice that his hind legs didn't work. And in his cart, he would zip around the lawn and take care of business and really act like, you know, a normal dog. Like no big deal, like some tripods act. You take their leg (laughs) off and they act like, it's okay, three's enough. Yeah, I can figure this out. Uh So that's one of the beautiful adaptable qualities of dogs. Well, and it's a wonderful book, Finding My Way to Moose River Farm. I'd love to come by and walk in the woods with you and this menagerie and the little goats that dance. It's it's a wonderful life story, and I think it, it's a little inspiration to people who may be at any point in their life where they think, God, I wish I could live more in the country with animals. And you know what? You can. I mean, Anne went and got a teaching degree and became a teacher, and you guys just figured out a way to live where you wanted to live and be able to support your dream. And I take my hat off to you for that. It's a wonderful book, and it's great little inspiration to people who might be able to follow your path on whatever level they're able. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Great talking to you, and good, good luck with the book and with all the animals that that will continue to be in your life. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Yep, bye-bye. We'll be back after this quick word with Stan Yoakum, who does puppy rearing for Canine Companions for Independence. We'll be right back. This show has been supported by Platinum Performance since its first broadcast. Platinum Performance makes comprehensive nutritional supplements which contain nutrients designed to improve overall health at a cellular level, especially joint health and the arthritis that comes with aging. Platinum Performance makes supplements for dogs, cats, horses, and people, too. We are also supported by the pheromone products Feelaway for Cats and Adaptal for Dogs. Pheromones are chemical communicators that are a natural signal of comfort in your pet's brain. Feelaway and Adaptal plug-in diffusers are stress relievers that can help with anxiety or behavior issues and also help adopted pets make the adjustment to their new homes. Veterinarians carry Feelaway, which can reduce problems in a multi-cat household, and they have Adaptal collars, which can help dogs with anxiety from separation, thunderstorms, or travel. I am back with someone I am dying to talk to because he's doing something I've always wondered what it was like. It's sort of like, 
It sounds wonderful, but it sounds heartbreaking. Stan Yoakum is a volunteer puppy rearer for Canine Companions for Independence. You know these folks, CCI, because they've been on the show before talking about the great work that these service dogs do. In fact, my wonderful engineer, Kyle, his mom, which I didn't know until this extreme second, has a CCI dog named Echo. So, Stan, welcome to Dog Talking Kitties 2. And before anything else, let me just say, being a puppy rearer to me is one of those really Mother Teresa things that we can do in the world. I mean, you're doing this completely selflessly for somebody else and having to put up with all the nonsense and headaches of puppies, and yet you watch them grow into these wonderful young adults, and then you have to let them go. So bravo for you, and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much, Tracy. I appreciate that. Now, how many of these little critters have come through your life so far? Three, but I also, what we call puppy sit. And I have probably had about 12 of them come through. Oh, so my God. I've had what a lot of puppies puppy, over the, what, What's the difference between puppy pardon? sitting and puppy rearing? Um, well, rearing, we get the dog at a probably seven to eight weeks old and carry them for 18 months. And wow. All sorts of commands, yes. It's, wow. It's I thought it was only up experience. to a year. It's 18 months? Yes. And... The uh, puppy sitting, we will probably take a dog in for a couple weeks at a time when someone's on vacation, other, right. other puppy raisers, and they right. want somebody who knows the commands to follow yes. through with their dog. So, wow. Are they always Labradors? Does, does Canine Companions for Independence uh, rely only on labs, or do they do doodles? What Do they have a particular breed that they're breeding themselves, or how do they come about yes. the dogs? Yes. They, they have their own breeding program that's been going on for about 35 years. Uh, they started off with a bunch of dogs and primary Labradors, but realized that they did a Labrador-Golden Retriever mix. Yes. The Labrador was kind of toned down in the early stages of its development, and that's what all my dogs that I've received have been, Labrador-Retriever mix. But they do release Golden Retrievers just by themselves. So so they, so they, they don't use a pure Lab, but they'll use a pure Golden or a Golden Lab mix. You know, the last time I checked with them, I think they said they did use Labradors every once in a while, but it's so remote. That, Isn't that uh, interesting? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that used to be the go-to breed. Um, yes. so, so you, in order to become a volunteer, and I think all you get for your efforts is free food, right? Isn't that right? I mean, you uh, just get sometimes. <laughs> not even free food? Oh, my God. Well, we well I have to be honest, yes. it's just as well, because we have a wonderful listener, Gil Lutz, who is on his third or fourth seeing eye dog from Pilot Dogs, and, and those dogs are given free food as children that's food that I wish they weren't given. I wish they were given better food, and I could find a company that would give it, but, you know, they, they make these relationships with with some dog food companies, so maybe it's just as well that you get to choose your own food. So, well, no, excuse me. I, 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 you know, I actually thought you were talking about that I get free food. Oh, for God's no, sake, um, <laughs> dog. We, um, we, don't, we don't get paid to, to buy the food, but they ask us to get Yukonuba because really? Yukonuba sponsors CCI, yes. But they make and, you buy the Yukonuba? Yes, they, that's what they would like us to 
buy for the dog. Isn't it funny? I mean, I don't know. The world is just a funny place. If you ask me, 18 months and you're supposed to buy the brand that supports them, but it doesn't support them enough to give you the food. Never mind. We are going to go down that path. We're not going to go down that path. I'm just like always stunned by how these things work. The important thing is that these little young puppies taken away from their litters and then each of them deposited in the home of a puppy rearer. And I'm sure you had to jump through a lot of hoops, if you will, yourself to be accepted as a puppy rearer, right? Well, we did. And we have to sign a a 12-page document or something like that. And we sign our name over and over and over again saying, this is not your dog and you will return it if we request you to. Right. So that we we do follow the the, uh, organization's guidelines of how to raise them. Do you think that somebody at some point early on in, in this process, and I'm sure it's true for guide dogs and other service dogs, became so attached that they just couldn't, they couldn't tear themselves away and they like ran off to Romania with the dog. I mean, did you think that's ever happened? <laughs> I have not heard of it, but it's funny when we have what is called graduation, uh, that's when dogs are given to the recipients of the dogs. Yes. Uh, there's a sign outside the organization that has, says an arrow that says Canada and another arrow going the other way says Mexico. <laughs> and so it's a joke. I mean, we, we show up and that is the hardest day. And it's, it's called the matriculation oh my segment God. of the graduation. And when we hand the dogs in after having them for 18 months, and I mean, it is, it's devastating to a lot of people. And that's the question I'm asked all the time. Yes. How do you do this? That's when right. You have to get the dog out now. And it's all very well for one to be say altruistically, well, I know this dog is going to perform an, an essential and amazing function in the life of somebody without whom their life would be diminished or not possible. But altruism is an intellectual idea and emotional attachment and bonding or something else entirely. And that's why I said in my introduction, I can't wait to talk to you, but I just can't imagine how hard this must be to do. As I understand it, and this is something that that wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily need to you know defend, but I my personal experience and opinion is in looking at the way all of these really high level uh, companion dog organizations work, whether it's Canine Companions for Independence, Seeing Eye, Guide Dogs for the Blind. So many of these organizations they're seriously run, well thought out. They have decades of science behind them. They all have their own breeding programs. Uh, they they test the mothers and the fathers up the wazoo for every kind of mental and physical wellness and illness. And then something like more than half of the puppies after a year to a year and a half wash out. Now, they love to call it a career change. They basically mean they fail. So now that must be sometimes the perk, if you will. You're not doing it to get to keep a dog because you don't want your dog to quote unquote fail. But it's sort of like a trivial pursuit question where it's, you know, like 50-50, white or black. I mean, you could wind up with one of these dogs forever, right? Yes, I, and I have. Uh-huh. And I have, experienced, I have experienced both occasions, which you have just talked about. The first okay. dog we had was named Willow. And she went with a young girl in uh, Utah who had cerebral palsy. And it was very difficult for me because I had just got so attached to this dog. And But when I saw what Willow did for this little young girl, when the girl got her, she was 12 years old, extremely smart, but restricted to a wheelchair. Yes. And we have been very fortunate to have that family keep in contact with us. In fact, 
at middle of this month, we're going to go up there and pick up Willow and keep her for a month because they no know kidding. enjoy her. Oh, it my was, God. Oh. So the relationship yeah. goes on and on. Yes. Yeah. But well, it did, it did have so, your, your, your pain, if you will, to see that dog work with this little girl and, and expand oh, her life. I, I have seen it in, and it just, it tears your heart out because you feel so good. I mean, so proud. So incredibly proud. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But, then going on to the second part, my second dog, which is named Tawny, um, she was unbelievably even better at what we expected of these dogs than Willow was. But she was high energy. And we told the organization, you better watch this because she gets really excited when she wants to, to please people. And she went into the graduation, um, I mean, the professional training phase of their development which is six months long, and was into it for five months when all of a sudden the trainers, or the trainer at that time, right. realized she had changed somewhat. And this is, goes to the current uh, change of career or failing. Yes. And she literally shut down. She was doing extremely no well. No high marks and just stopped. And they finally, they called, they called them in. They all were talking about it. We, and they said, we do not understand what went wrong here. But they finally said she got homesick. She decided she no longer wanted to do these commands with us because she wanted to go back to where she, her life began in her mind. And so the organization, which is just an unbelievable organization, will not force a dog into something that they don't want to do, no matter how good they are. So they called me, and before they could hang up the phone, I was knocking at their door. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I have experienced for both both wow. sides. I have given the dog and seen that unbelievable opportunity for that young girl, and then I've got one back. And but so, what's and fascinating is, see, I thought what happened when they career change slash wash out was they were simply, I've been told, oh, too high energy, whatever that means. What, you know, large breed oh. dog isn't high energy at a year and a year and a half. They'd be brain dead if they weren't. Or, oh, too interested in looking at the birds. Well, you know, most retrieving breed dogs should look at the birds somewhat. So I never really got what it is that they were expecting, kind of like a robot or an automaton or some kind of a, you know, mono monovision kind of dog. But I never imagined what you're describing, which is suddenly some shutdown as if the dog was experiencing, I guess, emotional stress. But the five months up until then, she had gone along with the program, so to speak. Oh, yes. Extremely Isn't that amazing? Yeah. You know, the owners, I mean, the volunteers that I deal with have talked many times amongst ourselves about what, what causes dogs to wash out of the system. Yes. And you were talking about the percentages. And in CCI's percent, I think it's 46% don't make, I mean, uh, 46% make it. So That's right. That's right. Don't yes. make it. And that's true and of seeing have, eye dogs, too, because you yes. CCI is not seeing eye dogs, right? It's for other physical no, challenges? No, they do not. They do hearing dogs, uh, facility dogs, and uh, assistance dogs. Yes. Yes. But so what, and what did have, you all conclude, if anything? Well, that's it. I mean, we, we don't know. And we talk, and we've been at this for years now, talking amongst ourselves because we get together quite often. And oh, train, how nice. What is it? I mean, this dog I thought would have been an absolute natural. Yes. And that one over there... In fact, one of them, our close friend, just had a dog. And I told her when I puppy-sitted for her once, the dog's name was Breezy. I said, she is a beautiful dog, wonderful, but uh, she has some skitterishness in her, and she is 
concerned about noises on the side and you can't walk her anywhere without her jumping Reacting. away and looking at things. I go, that, that's, that's just an automatic washout. And she goes, I know, that's what I said. She made it. No kidding. She graduated and was given. So we don't have an answer. It's volunteers. So in other words, they're really each individuals. And you can do, it's sort of like, you know, any kind of breeding for a a skill, if you will. They're kind of freaks of nature, the ones who can do it. If you look at animals who can do any of the amazing things they do for us, with us, you know, not just dogs. And I guess the ones who can do it, you, you try your best to kind of put everything you can into the hopper to come out with the result you want. And I guess what... What strikes me as kind of frustrating is that the amount of time and energy and money spent on trying to, in the test tube, if you will, create these perfect specimens, and yet you have a washout rate, never mind the nice terminology, over 50%, and then you look at some organizations which aren't in any way organized, like you, like CCI and others, but the ones that are putting shelter dogs with veterans for post-traumatic stress syndrome. Now, I understand those dogs are mostly to be very tight companions. Isn't that their main qualification for PTSD military folks? So that's obviously doesn't involve all these commands. um, Well, they, yeah, in certain instances, I mean, I don't know about the other organizations, but ours uh, service the the military heavily. And it's just started in the last few years. And that was one of the reasons listening to one of the uh, young guys that came out of the military talk about what the dog meant to him is what got me into volunteering. I oh, said, I'll be darned. I can give up a dog if that if yes. that is what a dog can do for somebody. So, and yet you sort uh, of wonder in that case. Well, I wonder if you, as a volunteer, were to somehow scan. You live in Palos Verdes. There's tons of shelters and rescues, and find a young dog. And if one knew the miracle of what would make that dog good at this kind of job just pluck one out of obscurity, you know, I mean, right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's such a conundrum because all this preparation makes sense on one level, but it, but even after all these decades, it doesn't prove true. The proof is not in the pudding. Now, when right. you, when you take them, do you do these things like go to shopping malls and escalators and elevators and, and all the various things walk on sidewalks and see scaffolding and is there a list of things you have to like a like a treasure hunt list of things you have to expose them to the, the organization gives us ideas but they, they just say take them everywhere and i have right. taken all of our dogs they have been on airplanes boats trains wow buses they have gone in multiple sides of cars they go in every department store every grocery store every hotel every restaurant that we go to we introduce them and socialize them to every possible avenue that they might approach with a graduate. And it's a wonderful experience. I've had many dogs before, but I, in, when I got with CCI and got the experience to actually take a dog everywhere with you, they are never left alone because their purpose, if That's they got right. to graduate, would never be left alone. That's they right. Everywhere. Everywhere. It's a phenomenal. Op- I mean, I just love it. People come up to me and say, how, how old is this dog? And I will tell them, and it's usually always under two years. Sure. And they go, how? And they think that it's mainly, it's, it looks like Labrador, but right. there's the golden sheep in it. They go, how did you get that dog to act like that? I said, I, it's a lot, has a lot to do with the breeding program. But back to, you know, only a small percentage making it. And I think if you go to uh, the shelters and things like, and get these, these rescue dogs, 
I had met a lot of them through this organization again, just the people own them themselves, the other volunteers own them. They are wonderful dogs too, and they could do the same thing. It's just that they're not part of the organization because CCI and I assume the other ones like to have their own breeding program. So, but a dog I guess what I'm really to- suggesting is maybe they should rethink the breeding program. On the other hand, at least the dogs are physically solid. I mean, that's another oh, big boy. issue. You know, oh. the hips and the elbows is really oh. important, not to mention cancer. Now, Gil Lutz, one mm-hmm. of his dogs, Evie, at five years old, died of cancer from like one week to the next. And these were purpose-bred oh yeah. dogs. And so one hopes that they're like, wow, we better never mate that mom and dad again. But for the most part, that's got to be do. a really big issue, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. And they, we, we know a, one of the breeders very well. And she recently had her breeding puppy deliver eight little puppies. Six of them died, and I'm sorry, I do not know the. Wow. The, the, yes, the what the symptom is. Right. But they can't take in solid food. Oh my God, and, Stan! And when she saw the first one having problems, she rushed it to the vet, and they looked at her, and they said, "Yes, this is what it is, and it's not going to make it." But don't worry. I mean, this is so rare. All the other ones will be fine. Wow. So five more died, and she only got two out of the litter. That those puppies, all six that died, are going through every yes. um, medical school, yes, right, uh, right, veterinary medical school around the United States, trying to figure out what in the heck happened because they they went back to the breeding. Now, the mother female dog has not bred with that male again, and I'm sure that male may have. I don't know if they tried it with someone else, but right. they may have taken him out because she had successful litters before, and she has now had one subsequent to that. Isn't and that's that extraordinary? Where the dogs that my daughter's raising. Oh, really? So your daughter became a yeah. volunteer too? Oh my God, yes. it's definitely yeah. in the family. So what was about your third dog? So your first dog, Willow, went off to the little girl in the wheelchair right. with cerebral palsy. Then back came Tommy because she couldn't bear to be without you. Tawny. Tawny. And then who was the yeah. third one? Is that the one you have now? No. Poe, she is in professional training, right? She's in that six-month period. Oh, and I right. Think she graduates in... What is it? Uh, these women. October, November, October, August. So, so, so in your if case, she makes it all the way through. In your case, you've not seen her basically for six months until you go to no. the graduation if that, you choose to go. That is tough. Oh my <laughs> goodness! And 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 do they do the dogs kind of look, go happy berserk when they see you? Uh, there, I have an experience when we came back to deliver, which is actually delivering. Tawny over to the family that had been with Tawny was released to somebody in the, the training program for two weeks. They spent two weeks before they graduate right. and they teach the family how to work with the dog and everything. Well, when the graduation comes day of the graduation, they call the volunteers back and say, would you like to deliver the dog? Oh, I see. So it's a real ritual. Of course we did. So, we had breakfast with them and everything, and then they called us aside. They take the dog away from the family. They said, "Just you're gonna a few hours. You will not have the dog." And they call us in and say, "We want to reunite you with Tony. I mean, excuse me, with Willow, and then you will hand her over." So we walked in the room, and Willow, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, I keep using the wrong name. Tony looked at us, saw, and leaped off the ground, all four feet. Straight wow. Down. 
And the the, the uh, instructors, there was about six instructors there, and they all went, oh, my gosh, we have never seen a dog react that excited about. Just a full-on Snoopy oh, leap yeah. oh. right up into the yeah. air. Well, you know, you consider yep. I mean, it's not all just... Four, all four feet. They, yeah, didn't, didn't Snoopy off jump off? I think Snoopy jumped off all four feet and did a happy dance <laughs> in the air. But I, it's hard to say, really. But I guess yeah. the real point is that it isn't just 18 months. In a funny sort of way, it's almost like 18 years. Because who spends every single waking and sleeping hour with a dog? And that's what you did with each of these dogs. There wasn't a minute that they weren't with you. All the time. Oh. So that accrues to many more than, than just the weeks and months that, that it adds up to. Stan, we've run out of time, but it's just so fantastic that you're doing this. Would love to have a picture Bye. of you with, with one or both or all of the, of the puppies and, and even when they graduated. Whatever photos you can send me, I would, I would love to share on Facebook. Absolutely. I think it's fantastic. And also your daughter, if she wants to, to do that, I, I just we, we take our hats off to you. And, and I, I just think you're, you're brave and wonderful and loving and and I'm sorry that, that you had to get one back. But, of course, I'm really happy for you and for the dog. You got reunited. <laughs> oh, my. You take care. Keep up the great work and okay. have a wonderful rest of the day. Okay. Thank you take very care. much. Take Thank care. Thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. We'll be right back after this quick break with Julie Hecht from the Barnard School for Dogs, which isn't really the name for it. But we will be right back. Support for Dog Talk comes from Precious Cat Litter, which is privately owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who is dedicated to creating litters to appeal to pussy cats and protect their health. All the Precious Cat Litters are low dust for the health of all members of the household. Touch of the Outdoors is their newest litter made from field grass that provides environmental enrichment for indoor cats and entices them into the litter box with the natural scent of the great outdoors. Support for this show also comes from Nordic Naturals, omega-3 fish oil products that provide dogs and cats with the same premium quality omega-3 fish oils as for people. Research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in omega-3 oils. Nordic Naturals uses responsibly sourced healthy wild fish and uses third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness in all their oils. I am back with Julie Hecht, who is such a cool person. She's a dog spy. I know I said that earlier. She wants you to discover the science behind the dog in your bed. Julie, I'm so excited to meet you. The work you're doing is so exciting. Thanks so much for having me, Tracy. It's a pleasure. Now, your relationship with Alexandra Horowitz, who became famous for her, her couple of books about dogs, or famous in the, in the lay world. I guess she was pretty well known in the canine cognition world. You're, you're yourself a canine behavioral researcher and a science writer and have done a huge amount of writing. You run the dog cognition lab at Barnard College, is that right? So I've been a researcher with Alexandra Horowitz um, since about 2010, um, and I'm still doing research with her, but I'm also now a PhD student at the City University of New York, um, so I'm actually trying to get my PhD as well. Wow, and what, a PhD in? Uh, so the title would be Animal Behavior and Comparative Psychology. So wow. it's, there's a, yeah, lots, Very of, lots cool. of words there. Very cool. So you have been spying on dogs for a long time or interested in it, I mean, before it even became hip and trendy. I imagine you're someone who's been looking at them and stroking your beard, as it were, and thinking, what are they doing and why are they doing it? Is, is that always been something that, that just uh, lit a candle under you? I think, yeah, that's an adequate way to say it. Um, I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison in undergrad, and I had the luck, I could say, of um, Patricia McConnell being one of my teachers. 
And so she's uh, a foremost person in ethology, the field of animal behavior, and more importantly, applied ethology, so the study of human-animal interactions. And she did her research back in the 80s and 90s. And so just to see that all of these questions that we have about dogs or the dog-human relationship can actually be explicitly studied. Um, so that, that early exposure back in college kind of set me up that this is a possible career path. And then I went on and I got my master's in applied animal behavior and animal welfare at the University of Edinburgh. Wow. From there, How cool. Right? So, I mean, there's actually places that you can go yes. to study animal welfare. We don't just have to talk about it as this abstract term. There's actually um, measures of what is good welfare, what is poor welfare, and how can we measure that. That's pretty neat. I'd actually love to also, in addition to talking to you today, to you today particularly about this upcoming conference that you're you're part of, mm-hmm. is to have you come and talk on my show Humane Talk on the Radio Pet Lady Network because the whole point of that of that particular show is to talk about this evolving knowledge, recognition, awareness of what's going on with other species. Of course, a lot of us who listen to dog talk and live with dogs in our beds, we're kind of selfishly more interested in that. But the whole the whole field continues, it seems to me, to expand, and it's a validation of something that people like you that have been thinking, this is what I want to do, and how do I go about making that into a livelihood and a, you know, a, a recognized and, and a respected profession? You found that very agree. much so. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I think that also in the field of animal welfare, there's a lot that we can learn from, from different um, areas. So, for example, if I talk about olfaction in dogs, dogs' sense of smell, you know, we often talk about dogs having such great noses. But if you go into the zoo world, for example, they're talking about olfactory enrichment for zoo animals. So even in dogs in our own homes, you might say, you know, sure, they are loved, they are taken care of, they have their basic needs met usually, but what about their cognitive abilities? What about their cognitive interests? Are we embracing that if they're sleeping on the couch all day? Yeah, it's a really good point. I think the whole concept of enrichment of your dog's life, a recognition that they have lots of untapped resources, not because you necessarily want to go out and be a search and rescue person, but because it allows the dog to evolve to their full dogness. Otherwise, they're kind of almost a caged animal themselves. If you aren't offering them some kind of a menu of things to do, which they're hardwired for, which they're capable of, and which they'd get, I guess, a lot of self-confidence and joy and pleasure out of doing, if you just want to think of it from that point of view. I agree. I agree 100%. And, you know, the idea that there were these interactive toys, really they were started as a way to, to for your dog not to eat the couch from separation anxiety, instead to knock around some plastic giz- gizmo out of which fell pieces of kibble. But what I think has happened with the guidance of people like yourself is the understanding that the figuring out of how to get things out of that puzzle, it's not just about keeping you from being bored and anxious. It's really engaging in that part of the dog's brain. I don't know if Nina Otteson did science behind. She was the first person to create these these sort of puzzle activity feeders. Isn't she? Isn't she? Wasn't she the first one? She still lives in Sweden. Right. I don't know if she was the first, but I am uh, familiar with her products. And I do know that people have, research groups have looked into um, the interest and interaction between the dogs and products. I don't know 
if the research has been published yet, but it's also really interesting because we're seeing that, you know, if you, for example, open up your back door and tell your dog, hey, go have fun, sure, the sights and the sounds and the smells might be of interest to them, but we're really finding that for a lot of companion dogs, it is about the person being present and yes. the person being there. So yes. what's interesting is there, there's this phenomenon called the secure base effect, which I, I love this research because it's pretty much showing that when you are present, when the owner is present, the dog was more likely to interact with the environment. So, you know, they could be to some degree, depending on the dog, depending on the activity, they, they could be things that the dog engages in on their own time, but that shouldn't necessarily be assumed. Um, and this is where spying on your dog and setting up uh, <laughs> video cameras is, is increasingly, you know, it's so wonderful. It's like nanny cams for dogs. Yes. But they, we should be, we should be thinking about just because this is a product, it doesn't mean it's right for your dog or it might be right in particular context. So there's a lot to think about. And I, I love that example of dogs being more likely to interact with something in the environment when you're present, especially in a novel place. Yes. So it's, um, it's kind of taking the research and saying, so what, you know, this is, I'm very glad you got a publication. That's wonderful. But what can we do with this research? And is it applicable to the average dog owner? And I guess the the application is, and many of us have just noticed it about our dogs, that they're more likely to play or want to play or even interact with other dogs or with a body of water or a mud puddle or whatever it may be if we're there. And sometimes yeah, yeah. if we're encouraging them because we think it's cute or funny or good for them, you think, well, maybe it's your encouragement that's doing it. But you're saying the secure pace is, is that you being there is what gives them that extra oomph to go give it all a try. It, it, yep, very possibly. Like an example I would give is on, on the street, I see a dog. If the dog seems friendly and happy and might be a dog that would want to say hi to me, you know, if they're waiting for their owner yes. who's in a store, I'm not going to get any attention. So I will wait for the person to come back. They'll have a little greeting. And then it'll be my turn. So I understand that the context, you know, the, I don't want the person to have to say, I'm so sorry, he's whatever right now, he's right. waiting. He's, right. No, I understand that. I'm not going to force myself on a dog. I'm going to think about the context. So I think, I think that's a huge thing for people to think about, that, you know, your dog is in a lot of different states, as we are, and that those states should be recognized and acknowledged. And that they're legitimate and they're natural and normal and some of them yeah. are hardwired or chemically based and, and, and working with it as opposed to against it makes yeah. that dog a more comfortable, well-socialized dog that can enjoy the world more confidently alongside you. A lot of people have probably maybe even not been aware of your, of your byline, but you write often for the Bark magazine and you have a blog at Scientific American called Dog Spies. And then you have, I think it's your own website, dogspies.com, with your, your colleague who's another dog-loving, dog-watching person, Mia, right? Yes. So Mia and I are collaborative. Uh, it, we're kind of collaborative pen pal. It's a collaborative pen pal blog. She is in Australia, and together we run Do You Believe in Dog? And we kind of go back and forth uh, writing little letters to each other about our research or about the research that's coming out. And more recently, we've had uh, other researchers join us and write us these pen pal type letters about their research. So it's kind of... It's this, wonderful. You know, this, it's thank you. We're, we're having a lot of fun. I think for, for dog owners, it's really great because you get to sort of, you know, s spy on your letters to each other, which are all about your work and your enthusiasm for it. And it's lively and, and not like stuffy and too, uh, 
too fancy, too, too many big fancy right. words, although, which we have to talk about fancy words in a minute. So do you believe in dog? It's, it's really a, a marvelous place to visit. You also say on there that you would really like to meet our dog. Now, do yeah. you mean people in New York City? Because lots of people that listen to the show live or, you know, in the Hamptons or on Long Island or Connecticut or Westchester are very near Barnard College, which is where your uh, the the uh, dog cognition lab is. Do you really want to be yeah. people's dogs? Do you want people to knock yeah. on the door and woof and, and join your work or what? That's a wonderful question. Yes. Um, so all around the world, there are dog cognition labs that want to meet your dog. Um, and so what we mean by that is our research, There's we, we're not talking about lab eagles. We're talking about studying the companion dogs that live in people's homes. So you're doing the feeding, you're doing the walking, and then you will bring the dog into a lab, or sometimes the studies are even done in your own home, depending on what the question is, depending on that study for, uh, for that research group. And so all around the world, um, you know, if you go, if you type in Horowitz Dog Cognition Lab, you'll get to our website and you'll be directed to a page where you can sign up to be contacted about any of our studies. That's so got to be fun. Yep, and so that's the first step, and dog owners do that, and then when we have a study, we'll go through and see who's in the vicinity, who's, you know, local. Um, we're, we're usually looking for people in the tri-state area, um, but sometimes also our research is more broad or general. We did have a study called Project Play With Your Dog where we said anybody in the world um, can send us a video of how they play with their dog, and so we got videos from Oh, my Asia, God, what a hoot. It was amazing. So this, you know, that's more of a public outreach type project. But I should say, so we are in New York City. Um, there's also a dog lab in Yale that people, if they're in that area, could look into working with. Um, and then Brian a, Harris down in North Carolina, right? In Duke, yep. And they have a group um, also at Arizona State University. They're also local. So these are these are some groups in the USA, but also on my website, dogspies.com, I try and list all of the research groups because they're all around the world, and you might be in Vienna and be able to work with that group, the Clever Dog Lab, or... The oh, that's a famous one, right? I mean, that I, I, I was always amazed that there was this early research coming out of Vienna. I thought, why Austria in, in dog cognition? But going back decades, is that counterintuitive yes. to you? I mean, it was like, uh, no. they had seemed like so they were doing this before anybody. Yes. So the Family Dog Project, um, which was the group that I did my master's with in, in Budapest, in Hungary, uh, was founded, I believe, in 1994, and they started publishing research around 1998-99. And they were the first, what you would say, Department of Ethology, so Department of Animal Behavior, that said, you know, we can study these evolutionary questions about the dog-human relationship. We don't just have to say, oh, we don't just have to... Uh, have assumptions and myths and anecdotes right. we can actually right. investigate it. So they um, they and the Clever Dog Lab, which is in Vienna, started quite early, and um, they were wonderful to work with. Great How people. exciting. See, I didn't even realize you'd been there. You you are definitely one of those seminal people. Yes, I love that. It's so great to be early to the party, isn't it? It's like, come on board. I've been here for a while. Come join us. Let's talk in the time we have left about Sparks, because June 20th to 22nd in Newport, Rhode Island, quite a fancy and attractive place, there's going to be this amazing gathering of great minds in the dog world put together by Prescott Breeden of the Positive Pack Leader. And 
it, it has great people doing presentations at a pretty high university level. But we can, if we can't get to Newport, Rhode Island, there's a free live stream of it. And then you're commenting on it, or is, is that your function? So it's, it's pretty interesting. SPARS, it's, it stands for the Society for the Promotion of Applied Research in Canine Science, is in its second year running. And what they do is it's a three-day conference where each day is dedicated for a different topic. And researchers such as Patricia McConnell and Clive Wynn and Ray Coppinger, Samuel Gosling, a bunch of people um, are all signed up to comment and give these hour-long presentations. Um, myself and Mia Cobb, who's my collaborator at Do You Believe in Dogs, we are the hosts. So this year, we are going to be introducing all the speakers. We're going to be wow. interviewing the speakers. We're going to be running the daily panels. And importantly, I would argue, just because I am so involved in social media now, is that we're going to be managing all the Twitter um, and uh, all the social media comments. So we're going to be interacting with the public who is watching internationally in real time and saying, you know, if they have questions, that's where we come in. So it's going to be a really kind wow. of multimedia interactive uh, event. It's amazing. I, being the person who finally very late to the party, does recognize social media is an important force in our world and it's here to stay, but am completely yeah. all thumbs about it. But I have a wonderful social media manager and I'm going to see if there isn't a way that she can connect this show and wherever it exists in the social media world, as well as Radio Pet Lady Network, to be so that everyone that listens to my shows can join in with what you're doing and have you be their guide through it. I think it's thrilling that this is. is really open university. I mean, here's at a university, the highest level of thinking and studying um, about dogs, and yet wanting to make it accessible to dog owners. Some of it might not be of total interest to you or maybe feel slightly over your head, but a lot of it's going to be something that will totally thrill you to get to be a, a, a spy on the dog spies. I mean, I think it's right. very generous to do this as a free live stream because not everybody can get to Newport, Rhode Island or give it three days, but they, I'm sure they'll be thrilled. A, a lot of these topics are great. Yep. So I, I joke that um, if none of these topics apply to you, then you don't have a dog. Yes, I because, saw that on the website. Right. right. I mean, it's, so the topics, the first day on the 20th is aggression and conflict. So let's say you have a happy-go-lucky dog. Great, more power to you. But you might come across a dog That's right. who has some sort of, right? Yes. Um, the, the second day, the 21st, is temperament and personality. So I'm just going to leave that as a cliffhanger and say that there is a difference. Yes. And I think the difference is important. If yes. You know about it. Um, and then the final day, the 22nd, is science in training, which is actually getting, there, there really has been a growth in how do you actually go about training? What is the most effective training technique for a particular type of behavior? Yes. yes. And not this expectation that dogs should just understand by osmosis. Which is fantastic. And someone like Patricia McConnell, who was a pioneer in the idea of positive training, now these ideas are kind of, as you say, anecdotal and morphed and not fully understood. And by and by listening in on Sparks, I'm sure that a lot of us are going to smarten up and, and understand things better. Julie Hecht, it has been great to talk to you. I cannot wait to be a spy 
on Sparks and, and to learn more about you as a dog spy. And, and now that I'm in Vermont and not in the Hamptons, we're going to have to be one of your one of your satellites. We might as well be in the Netherlands, but we want to participate because I think what you're doing is just wonderful, as I'm sure well, everyone does so who's much. listening. Keep up the good work. Have a great time. And we look forward to joining you while you're there. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Take care. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you for listening. Kiss your kitties and hug your pooches, and we will talk again next week. Bye for now.